Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we celebrate Australian National Science Week by finding out about some Australian science. And when you say Australia and you say science, one of the things that might come to mind is our deadly creatures. And that's what we're going to focus on this week. Tales of Australian science and things that may lead you to some harm, from spiders to snakes to even some dangerous plants. Now here in Australia, it's National Science Week, starting on the 14th of August all the way through to the 22nd. And as an Australian podcast, it's important for us to celebrate National Science Week by showcasing different parts of Australian science. Now, we're going to look at a few different areas, and what better place to start than something that you probably automatically associate with Australia, and that is deadly creatures. Now, when you think of deadly creatures in Australia, a couple might come to mind. The great white shark, found off our coasts, maybe the redback spider, all of our species of snakes, or perhaps even the many creatures like emus and kangaroos that seem cute, but can be pretty devastating. But one type of creature that sort of stands out as a land-based critter anyway that is pretty Australian and pretty deadly has got to be our spiders. Now of course we have the funnel webs, we also have the redback. These are pretty dangerous spiders that you don't want to mess with. But in Queensland there's a quite common species that build a pretty intricate nest. These are the golden trapdoor spiders. Now, what they do is actually create a burrow, a tube almost. But unlike other spiders that make a big web and try and draw the creature in, like say a funnel web spider, the golden trapdoors, as the name suggests, actually make a burrow that has a door closed and open, which means it can use it to pop out and grab prey. But that also acts as a plug which is pretty useful if you make your burrow in somewhere that gets pretty wet, like say a rainforest or the moist area around a stream. It can even be submerged for a little bit of time. And that burrow, that 30, 40 to centimeter deep burrow with a thick plug door enables them to survive in all of the strange conditions that somewhere like tropical Queensland can throw at you. One with forests and one with creeks, one with lots of rain and then periods of dryness where that drained creek bed may actually be the perfect hunting ground. Now, in terms of a perfect hunting ground, you find a lot of these golden trapdoors in southeastern Queensland. Researchers from the Queensland Museum in Brisbane have just published a paper in Vertebrate Systematics about how they managed to discover five new species of golden trapdoor spiders lurking around Brisbane and the surrounding areas. Now, the lead author on this paper was Dr. Jeremy Wilson with author collaborator Michael Ricks. Now, these researchers were studying a wide range of varieties of different species of what is known as the Upolis variabilis group. Now, this Upolis group of golden trapdoor spiders, when they started to hunt around in Brisbane and the surrounding areas, they discovered there was way more than they could ever have expected. And it's a huge variation in species type for such, geographically, a relatively small region. Now, some of these were actually found in inner city or bayside suburbs, places like Burbank, 
and stretch sometimes all the way up to the Sunshine Coast and down to the Gold Coast hinterlands. Now, this involved a lot of field work, scouring Brisbane, taking samples and understanding where these species could occur and their specific ecological niches in these different regions of Greater Brisbane. One of the problems is they've made and categorised lots of recordings of different types of species, categorised their morphology, their habitats, what they were eating. Now, they were going to get into things like diving into their DNA to see how genetically similar are, because that's one of the big things you can use to help also separate out different species. The thing is, these are all living in urban environments around Brisbane, in whatever remnant habitats are still there. So you need to understand these species in order to conserve them, but you also need to know what you're looking for in the first place, because sometimes these species can be just holding on in the fringes of viable ecosystems for them. So that's why they worked for a few years, and they categorized a lot of different types of these species because some of them look very similar and live near each other. But that means you need a lot of evidence to see if they're truly the same species or if in fact they're a distinct group. The detailed analysis performed certainly showed that there is a huge variety of the type of this spider, this golden trapdoor spider. Now some could be found in the rainforest in say like the Diaguila Range north of Brisbane, Mount Glorious and Mount Nebo. And around there, you'll find what they described as being a particularly spectacular and beautiful, quite large version of this spider, Eupolis regalis. And the females of this species are bicolored with an orange carapace and dark red legs. These ones that you see in the rainforest have grown large and have some pretty cool colors. And if you go from, say, the rainforests around Brisbane down actually into the Brisbane city itself and around the river, you can find different types of species like Eupolis Schmitti and Eupolis Ravini. Now, these occur in the regions around the Brisbane River or along the creek itself. The creek is, is actually a very large river, much larger than, say, the one here in Melbourne. And these species of spider tend to thrive in this fringe along the river itself. So this tale of urban adaption and detective work to hunt for new types of spiders took years of painstaking work comparing and contrasting all of the spiders of this particular species they found and then say actually hang on if we look in detail there's a whole range of more diversity here and they still believe there's probably more out there that they could hope to categorize so next time you see a spider spare a thought for the scientists trying to study and categorize them identify new species and keep them safe and preserve them into the future some great work from the Queensland Museum about the discovery of new types of golden trapdoor spiders and how there's more types of spiders in Australia than we even thought of before. spiders and that means of course we have to talk about the other deadly creature in Australia that comes to mind. No, not humans, snakes. Of course what you picture in Australia and have to be careful of is all of our types of dangerous snakes and there are around 4,000 species of snakes alive today and 600 of them are considered 
medically significant to humans, i.e. bite, that's probably not going to do good things to you. Now, in Australia, we have a lot of snakes that can cause you problems if you get bitten by them. We also have some that aren't venomous as well. Now, that's the thing. Snakes, some of them at least, have venom, but not all. And this is an interesting thing that scientists have been investigating for quite a while. The evolution of venom, and this specifically these strange fangs that snakes have, compared to, say, other reptiles, is a key area of research that have been investigated by researchers from Flinders University and the South Australian Museum, published in the journal Proceedings of the Royal Society. Now, lead author on this paper was Dr. Alessandro Palci, and a large list of collaborators. Now, what these researchers did was study in detail the features of these teeth, not just, of course, from venomous snakes, but from venomous snakes, from snakes without venom, and even from a wide variety of lizards. All in all, around 19 species of snake and three different lizard species. Now, what they did with this different sample set is take some pretty high-resolution computed tomography scans. Then they could do some detailed finite element analysis. Okay, so what do these two things mean? First, first we take lots of detailed pictures and scans of the snake teeth and mouth and their surrounding area to get an idea of how they're formed. Then based on that, you can build a model, a three-dimensional model that could be simulated with, say, finite element analysis to understand the properties of that fang and how it works. Now, that's useful because now you know not just what is present in the mouth of the snake, but also how it works. One of the remarkable things about this detailed analysis is the researchers found evidence of placidentine in the maxillary, dentary, and palatal teeth of all of, the, basically, the living snakes, except for blind snakes. And this is significant because what they were finding is effectively the precursor line to the structural form that helps with injecting venom. Now, not all snakes actually had the venomous teeth in there in connection to the venom sacs, but these are interesting. These structure and foldings were present in pretty much all types of snake teeth. That is interesting. Now, of course, the largest of these placentide folds are present in the snakes with actual venomous fangs. But even the non-venomous ones still had some form of it. Not as sophisticated, not as advanced, but it was there. Only really discovered through this detailed scan. And this is really interesting. Because it suggests that the development of this feature that's found in snake teeth, when you compare it to, say, lizards, which didn't have the same commonality, means that snakes all at one point developed this trait now, not all of them turn that into being able to produce a venomous bite, but they all have this feature, which actually worked out really well for those to go on to develop venom, but it's still present in other snakes, which means that the evolution of a fang in snakes' evolutionary journey must have happened pretty early, back when they had a pretty common ancestor for most of the modern snake species. And what they were seeing is it's happening in the upper jaws of the venomous snake, not necessarily in terms of proximity to the venom fang, but more in terms of position in the mouth of the snake itself. Again, meaning that the generation of this type of feature may not have occurred originally as a form of injecting venom, but the teeth may have come first as the dominant feature that only then started to 
build in a connection to the production of venom. What their researchers suggest then is that in the evolution of snake teeth, it's a great example of how a shared ancestral feature of snake teeth, the fact that they all have this placidentine structure, then got co-opted repeatedly by different species to act as the basis for administering venom. It's not that all snakes can produce venom, but all snakes have this teeth structure. And then rapidly, different species at different points in time, separated in time and space, went, ah, I can actually use that for delivering venom. And it's a quite ubiquitous feature. And whilst only 19 species were studied in this paper, it's a good representative sample. And the authors are pretty confident that you'll see it in many, many different species, potentially all snake species. Now, this is a fascinating piece of research, which goes to show the strange way evolution doesn't pan out necessarily as you might think. The delivery of a dangerous snake bite actually initially started off as just snake having some pretty great teeth good for biting into their prey. And then other species are, hang on, we can use this maybe for venom, if they needed venom to be developed as part of their evolutionary journey. But it certainly goes a long way to explain why so many snakes end up being venomous. and may also explain why Australia has so many of those dangerous snakes. Anyway, this is a great paper published in the Royal Society Journal with researchers from Flinders University and the Museum of South Australia, with lead author on the paper being Dr. Alessandro. Now, of course, snakes, spiders, these are things that you think of when you think of Australia and deadly. Now, of course, there are many other things that we know to be deadly, dangerous for people, things like tobacco. Of course, we know of the devastating health impacts that tobacco can have. But tobacco as a plant is one that exists and grows pretty well in many places in Australia. And researchers from Curtin University have been studying a wild tobacco plant that grows pretty commonly in Western Australia and the Northern Territory. And what they found about this plant may surprise you. They published it in the journal Curtis's Botanical Magazine with authors Professor Mark Chase and Dr. Martin Christenhausen and others. Now, what they were studying is a type of species, Nicotinia walpa, which is found in the Katachuta National Park in the Northern Territory, an area near Uluru. And the name for this tobacco plant is given from the local Aboriginal world for wind. Because really, you only see this plant after there's been storms in the desert. If the rains don't appear with these storms, the seeds of this species remain dormant in the soil. Okay, this is pretty common for many things in Australia because, well, Australia is a pretty tough place to grow. And if you're a plant that has to adapt to the harsh conditions of the Australian arid zone, it could be much of many years before you get a good serious rain to enable you to grow. Now, the researchers in this case had to travel all across Australia's harsh arid conditions for over eight years to get enough samples looking for tobacco plants in all Australian territories, basically except for Tasmania where it's a bit too cold for them. But when they found all of these different species growing, they identified actually seven new species of wild tobacco growing across those regions. One of them was particularly astounding, mostly because it was deadly. Not in the way you'd think, tobacco, dangerous for people. No, 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 no. 
they found that this plant was actually killing insects. I go, well, okay, cool, it's to do with the tobacco. No, no, it's not to do with the tobacco at all. This plant was actually using a unique method, creating a sticky substance to trap and kill insects. That is quite unusual, especially for a plant. Now, many species, like you would think of, use this trap and kill method to eat insects. Picture plants, Venus flytraps, this is what you're picturing. But in Australia, these plants, from a native perspective, are relatively rare. Now, this is an interesting case because in such an arid conditions, they actually have found a species, Nicotinia insectidia, which has sticky glands covering all of the surfaces to trap and kill insects like gnats, aphids, and flies. And it's the first time ever a wild tobacco species has actually been reported to hunt and kill insects in this way. This is some pretty amazing research to discover in seas brought back from Australia, actually all the way through London greenhouses at Kew Gardens, where these plants were cultivated and chomped down quite happily on insects in the greenhouses itself. Even though it was far removed, like many things unfortunately have been from Australia taken to the UK, in this case, this sample was taken and still managed to thrive in these new and it's not the only unusual species they found on this sojourn across different areas of Australia. When they went to the coastal regions in WA's wheat belt, sort of the area where between the Great Salt Lakes and the area which is considered the WA wheat belt region, they found a species that thrives along that salty area. Now, normally, this region is considered basically not great for crop production which is surprising because some of the other regions in Western Australia in particular, it's a pretty great growing condition. And there's lots of farmland there that is actively used. But this plant, this Nicotinia salina, loves growing in really salty conditions that otherwise most plants would actually say, this is a bit much for us, let alone a crop of commercial level. So this is a pretty amazing things. Australia is a man of many extremes. And the plants and creatures here also can sometimes take it to the extreme. With such a huge country and unfortunately a long history of ignoring traditional knowledge and understanding of the plants and the diversities of the species that exist in this great land, we have overlooked, at least from a Western science perspective, many species of different types of plants and animals that are out there that make Australia so unique. But this is a good story about how different types of new species of plant have been discovered that do some pretty incredible things, stuff that no other plants in the world can do. Some pretty great research published in the journal Curtis's Botanical Magazine about how in Australia, even the plants might be out to get you. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. We celebrated National Science Week with tales of deadly spiders, snakes, and even some pretty deadly plants, or at least for insects. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.